Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey everybody, welcome to the Drum Shuffle. This is episode 28. Jamie Eads joining you as always. Hope everybody's having a fantastic week out there. Hope your drumming is coming along great. We have a fantastic episode for you today. We are going to be joined by one of the most prolific session drummers of the past 20 years, in my opinion. The great Matt Chamberlain will be by in just a moment, so please stay tuned. Lost Cabos Drumsticks may be the best kept secret from drummers today. Lost Cabos Drumsticks makes the finest tools to touch a drummer's hands in the business. The best news, almost every popular stick size is available in both white hickory and red hickory. If you don't know what red hickory is, it's made from the heartwood of the hickory tree, unlike regular white hickory, which is made from sapwood. Red hickory drumsticks will hold up to even the hardest hitting drummers. Their durability comes from the density of the wood, but they do not sacrifice the feel. Please visit LosCabosDrumsticks.com to learn more about their products. And don't forget to ask at your favorite retailer for Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys, we are super excited today because we are going to be joined by quite possibly one of the most prolific uh, recording drummers of the past 20 years, the great Matt Chamberlain, of course. Uh, here is just a short list of artists that he has either toured or recorded with. Uh, David Bowie, Fiona Apple, Nico Case, Soundgarden, Bill Frizzell, uh, Tori Amos, Morrissey, George Clinton, Elvis Costello, Pearl Jam, Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, Kanye West, Bruce Springsteen, The Wallflowers, A Perfect Circle, Willie Nelson, Elton John, Randy Newman, Miranda Lambert, Keith Urban, Stevie Nicks, Cheryl Crow. So if you can't tell by that list of credits that this guy is playing at the top of his game and at the top of the recording industry, um, you, you know, we were just so excited to get Matt booked on the show. Uh, such a nice guy. He has a lot of great information to share with us. Uh, so please help me welcome the great Matt Chamberlain to the drum shuffle. Hey, good afternoon, Matt. How's it going? going great awesome hey thanks for taking the time and coming on the drum shuffle we certainly appreciate it yeah thanks for asking me for sure um matt it, you know it goes without saying i mean i think all drummers and and probably most musicians know who you are and kind of how you came up so I, i'm not going to bore everybody you know going back to your to your childhood and, and all that stuff but You've just been so prolific um, over the years. You've, you've played with with pretty much everybody on earth, I think. You know, I've been looking through your website, um, you know, doing some um, some, you know, research for our interview today. And you've got just a ton of stuff coming out even this year. Um, so are you doing, you know, a session pretty much every day these days? Uh, no, no, not really. I mean, it it goes in waves, <clears throat> you know, like most studio work 
echoes. You know, you'll you'll for for some reason everybody wants to record at the same time, so you'll be working for you know two or three weeks straight, and then all of a sudden nobody's working, and then like a month later, everybody wants to record the same week. <laughs> so so it, it kind of goes in, it goes in waves, but <clears throat> and then a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, it it might be coming out at, at the same time. Other records that I've done are coming out, but maybe I did that session like two years ago. You know, a lot of people take a little a little time to finish up their records, so it's yeah. just all kind of a it it all uh, depends. But um, generally, I'm not working every single day on other people's stuff. I am coming to my studio if I'm home and practicing and writing and doing my own music if I can um, and cleaning the toilet and uh, you know, vacuuming <laughs> the floors. <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, I, I didn't know you cleaned the toilet and vacuumed the floors out at Cyclops Sound Studio, but, you know. Somebody has to. Oh, well, Somebody has to. Well, for you sure. You know, that old saying of like, uh, you, you don't own a recording studio. The recording studio owns you. So. <laughs> I'm I'm merely a slave to my my studio. Whenever it needs something done, I do it. But yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's a fantastic facility, and you know, I mean, I, I'm kind of curious to know: Do you allow other artists come in and and rent the studio out to do stuff, or or is it kind of Matt Chamberlain home base, and it's only for you? That's usually what it is. It's usually my my space for you know, projects I'm involved with. But I, I do have some good friends that I trust to, uh, you know, I've had people come in and do vocal overdubs or horns or just, you know, random stuff. But, um, but yeah, I just have so many personal items in here. It would just be hard for me to allow a band in and a bunch of, you know, because who knows, somebody might walk away with something <laughs> yeah I have a lot of things in here so yeah well I mean that does happen um you know it, it, we would hope that it wouldn't but it does happen occasionally and you know to that point you know um I if anybody has ever seen any of your videos um you know of you tracking in your space you know, I told you I was going to ask you about this. There is, you know, this, this, I guess it's kind of a rolling card. It looks like a big shelf, but it literally has one of the nicest collections of snare drums <laughs> housed in it that I've ever seen. Um, how long have you been collecting and, and was your, uh, has that collection been because you record or were you just a, a drum junkie and you have them? Um, I, a lot of it is because I record. Um, I, I keep thinking that if, if I wasn't making records as a hired session musician, I probably wouldn't have all those snare drums because there's no need for that many <laughs> drums. But, um, and, you know, over time I have enjoyed the finding the cool, weird snare drum in some shop somewhere or on eBay, the evil eBay <laughs> and, um, and, and just finding stuff to use that sounds a little bit odd because, um, a lot of times when I'm recording with people, they don't necessarily want the, you know, hi-fi 
full fidelity drum sounds. You know, a lot of times they just want janky shit, you know, stuff that's like rattly and, um, you know, uh, just kind of wrong sounding. So, um, I try to have a lot of that kind of stuff around and, um, a lot of, uh, you know, and, and uh, a lot of the drums are just tuned in a certain way so I can work fast. You know, like some drums are just tuned very low and dead and uh, in that, you know, 70s kind of fat thing. And then some of the snares are tuned, um, you know, in uh, more modern rock kind of open thing. So, so basically I, I have them all there and I can just grab them kind of knowing what they're going to do before... I even tune them, you know, because they're all pre, pre-set up. I guess you'd say they're sure. all they're, they're all tweaked to, to do a certain thing, and so I can I can grab it and go, okay, you're you're looking for this kind of sound, so let's start with this drum, and, and if that's not the drum, let's grab let's, let's grab this other drum, or if you want to go completely bonkers, I have this other thing, you know. So it it helps with recording, but you know, if I was playing live all the time on the road, you really just need a couple snares, just, you know, a backup snare, just uh, if something breaks, or maybe, you know, if you have like a song you have to do where there's like a particular snare drum sound you got to get on the song, but um, for recording, it's good to have a lot of options, you know, that's, that's what I think. Sure. Well, don't tell my wife that you only need two snare drums if you're playing live primarily. I <laughs> hopefully she's not listening to this today so uh (laughs) yeah you you know i guess i guess it depends what kind of live you're doing i mean if you're doing a lot of different types of music live you might need a lot of snare drums (laughs) okay so like a bebop gig or and then you do like a soul gig and then you do like a uh, you know uh rock gig you're gonna need some snare drums yeah, well, that, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it, brother. Uh, <laughs> and plus, snare drums are just cool. They're like, they're a little, little, uh, you know. It's not like buying a whole kit. You can just buy the drum. And right. Go, Look at this thing. This thing is awesome. I love this drum. And it does this. And, yeah, ex- um, exactly. Up, yeah, it's not taking up your whole room. You can just stick it in the corner. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I've walked into some gigs and the guitarist, you know, needs a U-Haul to bring all of his guitars in that he's going to use tonight. You know, why can't I have, you know, seven snare drums, right? I mean, exactly. yeah, it's, uh, you know, I I feel like I owe it to myself to buy another snare drum next week. So, uh, yeah. you, you know, so that's, that's kind of how I roll uh, o- over here anyway. Well, you know. And it is, and it is, you know, all joking aside, it is important to have all those sounds, especially now, because I'm finding that when you uh, are recording with people, they come in, a lot of times they come in with these demos that are incredible sounding. They just sound amazing, and maybe they're attached to the snare drum sound on the demo, and you got to try to get it, and you don't, you know, you just never know what, what they're going to want to go for, so... I mean, that's the excuse I give my wife. I need, <laughs> I need a lot of snare drums to cover a lot of different situations here. You know, um, you know, maybe it's a, you know, and, and plus it's just interesting to, to, to tune up like just like a basic Ludwig superphonic and just hear what it does naturally as opposed to like a chrome over brass drum or, 
a radio king or uh, like a craviato, like a solid shell drum or a brass drum. You know, there's there's so many different materials and ways of tuning them and, and qualities of sound. It's just cool to learn about it. I'm a, I'm a geek like that, too. I'm just always curious, like, well, what does that drum do? Um, you know, I noticed that guy's playing that drum. How come, you know, and obviously uh, the drummer's making it sound uh, the way it does, but th- there's certain qualities to drums that are just inherent in the way it's made and the materials and stuff. So it's it's just good to become familiar with it if you're, if you're doing a lot of recording, just so you can go, oh yeah, I, I hear on, on your demo, that sounds like, uh, you know, a superphonic or it sounds like a, a Black Beauty or right. some weird drum with lots of tape on it, detuned. Um, so it's just cool to learn all that, I think. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that's a good point. And, you know, it kind of in that same vein, you know, um, you're known uh, and you've done a lot of work uh, for the, the fine folks over at Loop Loft. Um, you know, I think there's a couple of collections now that you've done for them. And, you know, it, it runs the gamut from, like you said, you know, uh, bebop sounding kits or, you know, the 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 big bottom sounding kits and, and, and all that stuff. And I'm assuming that, um, you know, you used a lot of your collection on that. I'm guessing a, a lot of that stuff wasn't just backlined in when you did all of those loops, right? Yeah, it's just stuff I have lying around. Um, I you know, I, I'm a fan, I think besides being a fan of music, I, I might even equally be as much of a fan of drum sounds <laughs> as I am. Because whenever I hear something, a lot of times I'll get seduced by the drum sound, even if the music's not that great. And I'll just listen to it over and over again, just thinking, this sounds incredible. What is going on with these drums? Like, What is this? And um, Or this is, yeah, there, there's just drum sounds that, are uh, magical to me, and I, I'm just always trying to figure out what they're playing, you know, how they're playing. You know, nowadays with the interwebs, you just can Google and find out anything about most stuff. So it's it's fun to just kind of geek out, like on a, you know, like if you're listening to a Jimi Hendrix record, uh, you know, everybody knows Mitch Mitchell is probably playing a Ludwig kit. And it was probably mic'd this particular way. And, you know, you can see videos of him playing, and he plays pretty light. You know, he was a big fan of Elvin Jones. So um, it's just cool to see all those things, because a lot of those uh, elements, or actually all the elements, uh, add up to the drum sound. You know, the way the guy hits the drums, you know, if he's a basher or if he's not, if he plays lighter. Which, you know, generally a lot of those sounds from the 60s and 70s, the drummers were not bashing like they do now yeah well yeah i mean it only takes a cursory search of any you know drum forum to you know see the debates that go back and forth you know uh, what this drummer played on this record and and how he hit the drum and 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 all those different things you know i mean there's just a ton of debate about it you know what what hi-hats was ringo using on you know the white <laughs> album right. and right. You, you know and it, it can drive you crazy if you're trying to 
you know, and I think a lot of guys get lost in the gear thing, you know, and well, I have to have this exact symbol so that I sound like drummer X, you know, whoever that may be. And like you said, a lot of that tone and sound comes from from the hands, quite honestly. You know, I mean, I think I think you would sound like you behind any kit by any manufacturer for the most part, you know, and and I think that's true of of any drummer. And it it reminds me of this amazing story that Jim Keltner told me about when he first moved to L.A. and was getting into doing sessions. He, you know, back then the sessions were so big, you could kind of sneak in the room, you know, because there would be like, you know, 20 people playing on the floor or 15 people or something. And he would sneak into sessions and just sit there in the corner. And um, He was on a session with Earl Palmer or on, on a session that Earl Palmer was playing drums on and he, and he got there early and, and he was like, oh man, he, he walked over to the drum kit and kind of tapped on the drums. You know, he wanted to hear like how they tune the drums just to you know learn something about how to how to tune the drums for recording and and he tapped on them and he's like man these things do not sound good uh you know i'm I'm pretty sure when when earl palmer gets in he's gonna probably tune these things get them get them sounding right and so you know he sat there and everybody came in and earl palmer shows up and uh he sits down at the kit and he he just kind of goes around the kit plays the drums lights up a cigarette and they start playing the song. <laughs> he doesn't even tune the drum, but they sounded incredible. It was just the way he hit them. Yeah. I don't know what he did. I, you know, Keltner was like, I don't know. He just figured out how to make them sound good by hitting them a certain way or not hitting them. Uh, like maybe the rack tom was jacked up or something and he didn't hit that. But, um, it was in his hands. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, I I heard a similar story that Steve Jordan told once, you know, I think he was going in to do um, the expensive winos record with Keith Richards. And he said, you know, Keith showed up with like all these amps that looked like he paid $10 for them at a pawn shop someplace. And they sounded horrible, you know, on the floor of the studio. And he was like, man, something's wrong here. He said when he walked into the control room for the first playback, it sounded exactly like Keith. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I mean, I I guess when a guy gets his sound, you know, it's it's just going to come through no matter what. It's undeniable, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, drummers, it's particularly, um, uh, it's it's a phenomena. I think it's because because it, it's an acoustic instrument, and there are infinite variables that the person hitting those drums is going to do. You know, there's there's so many different ways of hitting the drum and how how you balance your sound between all your limbs you know how does it sound in the room when you're playing the instrument how how do you hit the drum uh your sticks your head choices you know there's so many variables that's why drummers are crazy because you think you have it figured out and you're just you know you're so ecstatic and then the next day you go into a different room with the same drums and you're like shit these things sound horrible what happened it's like oh the room yeah you're in a, you're playing an acoustic instrument of course you're you're at the mercy of the acoustics in the room you know i'm sure you've experienced it like playing in clubs or different venues you know every night if you're on tour or something your drums sound totally different cuz of the acoustics so yeah you have to you have to accommodate that yeah you certainly but, uh, do 
yeah, it's uh makes you a little nuts after a while. You're like, oh man, I guess I could be playing on just about anything then. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, depending on the gig, you know, if it's, if it's a fly date and you've got backline, you might be playing on anything. You know, I'm, I'm sure you have some yeah. horror stories that you could share about, you know, the backline kit shows up and it looks like it just came out of a fire. You know, it's, uh, I haven't had any bad experiences. I've had really good experiences. There was this one kit. I still think about it. I was playing the, uh, cause it, it, it just sounded insane. It sounded so good i couldn't believe it was one of those kits that uh it was it, it was like a backline kit for the telluride jazz festival and uh i was playing there with a friend and uh it was one of those round badge gretsch kits but it it was like a 12 13 16 with a 22 inch bass drum and it had coded ambassadors on everything on the bass drum front and back head no hole no muffling top and bottom of the toms, everything had coded ambassadors and it sounded insane. It was actually one of those kits that made me play differently because of the way it sounded. You know how sometimes when oh, sure. you're on a kit that inspires you and you're just like, man, I can't believe this. This is making me, I'm hearing things differently now. And you know, maybe it was the, the altitude or I don't know. You <laughs> 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 tell you, right. It's, you know, it's like 9,000 feet or something. So, but, um, I've had, yeah, I, I called the backline company after that gig and I was like, what was that kit? Are you guys ever going to sell that? Please sell it to me. And of course, they knew all yeah. about it. They're like, of course we're not going to sell it. This is, <laughs> this is a magical instrument. We're never selling this thing. But um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I, love, I love it when that happens. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I think anybody would. I've, I've had some really bad experiences, you know, and, and um, some good ones as well. But, you know, sometimes you're you're using somebody else's kit and it's it's great. And other nights it's not so great, um, you know, and, and you just have to adapt and and get through the gig. I mean, that's why you're there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, Matt, uh, you know, I want to go back a little bit and I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask about this because there is. Um, you know, there's so much talk about your time with Pearl Jam and, and I do want to at least touch on that. I don't want to spend a lot of time in the past because, you know, people can go out to, to mattchamberlain.com and see all of your credits and everything. But I do want to share a story about, um, Pearl Jam and the first time I was exposed to Pearl Jam. And of course you were in the video for Alive and, and that was the first exposure that I had. The first time that I saw the video for Alive was on a television program on MTV called Headbangers Ball. Okay. Oh, if, yeah. It, I remember that. So, you know, you're in the band at this time, right? Uh, or, or I guess you maybe you had just left to go uh, be on Saturday Night Live, I guess, by the time the video hit the airwaves. But, you know. Yeah, that, that was the last of the whole summer that I was with them. That was the last gig we did was um in seattle at this club called rock candy which is now a condo and um (laughs) (laughs) and they videoed and recorded the entire gig and that song was the song they used for the for the you know their single and it was actually the recording of that gig right the version off the record so that's that's pretty cool yeah it is cool and 
but you know i and i was a young uh, metalhead at this time you know because that was the popular music of the time you know rock music really was about you know dudes with long hair and guitars and and you know martial amps and big drums and all that stuff but I remember seeing that video come on Headbangers Ball because MTV had no idea what to do with Pearl Jam, right? I mean, they they, they just saw guys with long hair playing guitar. They must be a, a, a hard rock or metal band, right? That must be what this is. But I, I saw it on Headbangers Ball and I was like, yeah, this, this is different and it's probably going to be bad for that genre, you know, for, for, for the for the rock music of that time, you know, the, the heavy metal, hard rock kind of stuff. Did you know that it was going to be completely different and, and, and change kind of the landscape of music? Or were you just a young guy out there on the road with a band making a living? I, I'm curious what you were thinking at the time. Um, I had a sense that something was going on because, um, well, I, well, first of all, let me tell you how I ended up there doing that. I, you know, when Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians, my band I was in, broke up, the the producer of the last record that we did was friends with the A and R guy of Pearl Jam over at Epic, and they were looking for a drummer that summer to fill in because they had their record coming out, and you know, it was all ramping up. And um, so I went out to Seattle, uh, and we rehearsed for about 10 days. And when I was there during that time, Seattle was just on fire. You know, there was so much music going on. And, um, you know, like every night after we rehearsed, we'd go out and see some insane, you know, insanely great band like, you know, Mud Honey or go, you know, uh, there were so many local bands that were just killing it. And this was before the whole grunge thing became the grunge thing, you know, right. what these people played. It was just like loud rock music inspired by punk rock and, and, and classic rock, you know, like Sabbath. And, uh, so, uh, I had a sense that there was something. It felt really cool. You know, that, that's all I can say, you know, for lack of a better word. It just felt like something was going on. I didn't know what, but it, it was like a... It was definitely not hair metal. And it was just a bunch of... It seemed like it was a bunch of friends just playing in clubs, supporting each other. And, you know, apart from the music, there was also the whole art scene in the town. You know, there were a lot of... Uh, you know, artists that were a part of this music thing because back then it was so affordable to live there. You know, you could, you know, you could be an artist or a musician and pay your rent and eat, eat food and do whatever the hell you wanted because it was so so affordable. And so it it just felt like something was going on. You know, people were starting record labels like Sub Pop and. Um, <clears throat> It just, it just felt really unique. You know, it was this whole uh, do-it-yourself kind of attitude. And, uh, but it, but there was definitely some people getting in, you know, some record company people with some vision that were there. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, they signed Nirvana 
Right. And, you know, Alice in Chains had had some success already, but they were kind of like borderline hair metal at that point. Well, yeah. You know, it, yeah. I mean, the first time I saw Alice in Chains, they were actually opening up for like the, the Anthrax and Megadeth and Slayer tour, you know? So, I mean, they were out on yeah. the road with that kind of tour. So yeah, they definitely, yeah. um, they didn't fit the box, I guess, because of the industry. I, I don't know. Yeah. And things just felt, it just felt like in general, not necessarily just in Seattle, but just in general, like in, th- this is like 90, 91. It felt like music was starting to loosen up, especially with drums. Like you could actually hear, drums again like you can actually hear ghost notes like holy shit you can actually hear the tone of a snare drum because because you know like those metal bands like uh you know like when when uh Edie Brickell, like when when our first record came out in 88 guns and roses was the biggest thing and that was that 80s production you know where everything was drenched in reverb and the drummers back then were just hitting everything as hard as they could yeah you know there's no dynamics there's no no, no, like inside shit going on. You know, it was all kind of blocky, and you know, it works for that kind of music. But around ninety, ninety one, it felt like you're starting to hear drummers play. Like you know, I remember buying the very first um, Smashing Pumpkins record when that came out, like in ninety, I think it was or ninety one, and I was like, holy shit, I can act. This guy's he's like Keith Moon or something. You know, just. <laughs> Like this is badass. You know, I thought this is so badass. And then there were all these other bands that just around that same time that put records out, and it felt like there was something going on. It's like, oh, here, this is a whole other kind of music where people are playing their instruments and you know, kicking ass and writing good songs. And um, you know, like the first thing I ever heard out of Seattle before I even went up to. Uh, do the stuff with Pearl Jam was the Temple of the Dog record. And I thought it was incredible. I was oh, like, yeah. man, this is like, I love this. This is great songwriting. They're jamming, kind of, you know, like improvising. And, you know, Matt Cameron, of course, is just killing it. Yeah. And Chris Cornell is obviously just, I mean, it just felt special and different. So, and it was exciting. You know, it was just exciting to know that, oh, you know, I'm 22 years old and, I'm not going to have to play hair metal. This is an option. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can play rock music where people are having a musical conversation, you know, where it feels like music is being played. And, um, and so anyways, I did that. Um, it was just, it was like a temporary thing, like a, a East coast tour that we did in a van. And I mean, we were literally sharing hotel rooms, uh, opening up for bands, you know, nobody knew who Pearl Jam was, and uh, you know, it was it was really fun. And then we ended with the gig at Rock Candy, and at the time, I didn't I didn't want to continue doing it because I didn't have any connection with the music. They had written the whole record, and it was coming out, and they were going to tour it for four years, and I was like, man, you guys are amazing, but. I, this isn't, you know, it's not me. It's not what I do. It's, you know, it's fun to do for a summer, but for four years. Yeah. I um, mean, you would have been in that, 
kind of hired gun role because you know you you did not do the you didn't record the record so you know dave cruzan did that and he's awesome yeah but but there were some issues they were having and they needed somebody it was it was it was like the hot seat They, they needed somebody immediately because they were getting ready to just road dog it for you know years and years and years and I had just come off of road dogging it with Edie Brickell for like three years straight. I was like, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm, re- I'm ready to. I love to, you guys. But yeah. I don't, if, maybe if I had a connection to your music, you know, like if I was in the studio writing with you guys and we had this band vibe going on, it'd be great. But just, I just didn't feel a connection. Yeah. Well, I've read somewhere that you actually recommended Dave for the gig. Yeah. Who, so, so Dave Aberziz was a friend of mine in Dallas because I was living in Dallas at the time still. And uh, I just saw him play around town. And I thought, man, he would be great because he's like, you know, for, for some reason, Texas drummers have this funk thing going on <laughs> when they're playing rock. I don't know what it is, but I have so many friends from Texas that there's like a, a thing. Ah, it's hard to describe, but he had it, you know, and it was like, it was rock, but it was funky. You know what I mean? So, yeah. and he had a killer pocket and he was obviously, he's, he's my favorite drummer that ever played at that band. That's for sure. God, he's such a badass. Well, you should get on some of the drum forums and say that and watch the fight break out. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> it goes. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, man. It goes all the time. Who was the best drummer in Pearl Jam? You know, and, oh, and God. I, I mean, well, it, they've had as many drummers as Spinal Tap at this point. So we, <laughs> well, that's true. And man, they've got they've got a pretty good guy uh, man in the throne for them these days. You know, I mean, like you said, Matt Cameron, you can't hardly go wrong with him. And, and I know you spent some time touring with Soundgarden because he was out, I think, with Pearl Jam at the time. Right. <laughs> it's a very incestuous <laughs> little circle. It's a it's it's very confusing. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it, it was perfect because they didn't have to call the drummer a different name. They just looked back and said, "Hey, Matt." You're right. <laughs> How many times Same have you? Same and everything. MC. Yeah. Plus, How many? We're always being mistaken for each other. So. Well, it's perfect. So I was just going to ask. You know, how many times has somebody come up and said, "Oh, Matt Cameron, man, can I have your autograph?" How many times have you signed Matt Cameron on somebody's ticket stub? <laughs> Hey, I don't mind. That guy is such a badass. It's incredible. Oh, you, you're both That's, incredible guys. I mean, I don't, I don't mind being mistaken for him. I'll, I'll take it any day. But um, it's just, uh, it's just funny at this point. It's just, it's like a Monty Python skit. At trying, <laughs> trying to, trying to explain uh, to somebody like, well. We both, well, we both played in Pearl Jam and Soundgarden, but I'm not the original Soundgarden (laughs) drummer. He's the original Soundgarden drummer, but I'm not really the original. (laughs) Never mind. (laughs) Oh, man. To come to a dinner party with both of you guys would probably be just just a riot. I'm guessing. I I don't know. But uh, Well, we've joked. We've often joked about how, you know, it is a... People do mistaken us. And on top of that, they also mistaken uh, me for Jimmy Chamberlain because our last <laughs> names are the same. So so we were talking about we should all start a band where all three of us are in the band. 
because, you know, Matt plays killer guitar and I can play some bass. I'll get Jimmy to play some drums. <laughs> thoroughly confuse everyone. If you do put that band together, please, please, I'll have all three of you guys on this show at once. Okay. We, we will announce it right here on the drum shuffle. <laughs> It'll be fantastic. Yeah. Oh. But it's, it's, uh, the, the thing about that gig though, it's so funny because I, I literally only spent two weeks playing with them and it was just that one gig and, you know, it wasn't like, a. Uh, uh, I put my a lot of time into it. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's just funny to be identified. I mean, obviously the song did very well for them, and right, you know, kind of broke them into into super superstardom. Yeah, for sure. And they've, and they've been there ever since. They're killing it still, man. They're like uh, they're they're kind of like the Grateful Dead of the '90s. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. They don't even have to put a record out. They can just go out and, and tour and sell out 20,000 seat places forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I think um, probably one of the biggest rock bands in the world today. I mean, you know, you've got the Foo Fighters, uh, you've got U2 that's still out doing it. But I mean, you know, they're they're huge. I mean, they're iconic, really. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is fan- a, fantastic. Yeah, it's incredible. And, you know, it's funny because I was just sitting around talking with a friend the other day about, you know, all, all this unfortunate shit that's been going down with, you know, people from my generation that, you know, that are in band or that were in iconic bands like dying and moving on and, and, and just all this horrible shit that's going on and or has gone on. And we were, we were just thinking about, like, what bands are left from my generation that I would go see when I'm 70, you know, like, well, there's still Pearl Jam, you know, we're, we're all the original members are still alive. Um, uh, maybe, maybe some British bands like Radiohead or, yeah. um, I don't know. I mean, it's it, definitely not a lot of the Seattle bands right. are, are around, but, um, I was like, man, well, I mean, if Crazy. you're if you're looking at a band from 25, 30 years ago, there's just very few of them left that have all the original members, period. And, you yeah, know, yeah. now there are bands that are touring out there that have zero original members left. I mean, right, right. you know, and I'm not trying to cut on those guys at all. You know, you got to make a living. But, you know, the promoters are just buying, you know, the the name. You know, they don't care that it's, you know, just like the, the conga player that's the original member or, or whatever. Not, <laughs> not right. You know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, I, I mean, there's two versions of some of those bands that are out touring, competing against one another. I mean, it's it's kind of crazy that the business is what it is, you know. Well, I guess it kind of makes sense. I mean, if you want to make a living, you're definitely not getting it from record sales anymore you got to hit the road and however you can figure it out you know get out there and and work yeah that's that's not easy no it's not i mean in in the the industry it seems like now is kind of set up against the artist as much as it ever has been maybe you could compare it to the 50s you know, when all the, yeah. the, the payola stuff was going on. But I mean, you know, I, when I do a recording, 
and it hits, you know, iTunes or Spotify or wherever it goes, you know, if somebody goes out and buys, you know, my band song on iTunes for a buck 29 or, or whatever they're going for these days, I mean, we get like 12 cents. I mean, it's, it's crazy, right? you know? So, well, I mean, you know, and apparently from what I understand, record labels are making more money now than they have in the past like 15 years because they've cut all these deals with these streaming services and, and they actually are making money again, but it's, it's not being, uh, it's not going into artist development or the music. It's going into somebody's bank account. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah Cause, uh, it's, it's odd. It's odd. Cause it's not, uh, it's not trickling down. Mm. And I guess it makes sense that, you know, they're a business, you know, music industry, they're trying to make money. So, um, if people aren't buying records, if they're streaming, they're going to go for some other investment, which is kind of ridiculous to think that these people call themselves, uh, a record company and that they're, you know, trying to put music out, but really they don't really give a shit about music anymore. I don't think no. you know, if it's not making them money. What's the point in being a business, you know? Right. That's just the, the the reality of it, I think. And so, you know, you gotta hit the road or sell some uh sell some T shirts or something. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Or or like get get on social media, man, and start doing you know, selling I don't know, you know, I, that's something I haven't uh, wrapped my head around yet, but I know there's a lot of drummers and different musicians that are on Instagram and yeah. You know, they have this whole web, web-based web business thing going on. Well, I mean, it's just however you can, you know, pay the rent at the end of the month. At the, you know, at the end of the day, you, you've got to make money. And, I, I, you know, I think it, it leads people to be innovators, you know, and, and try to figure out how to capture revenue from non-traditional streams, you know. And, and yeah, I mean, everybody's in that situation, I think. You know, I mean, 20 years ago, you know, I was in a band uh, here in Kentucky and we were getting some, you know, major label attention and, and that was great. But I remember, you know, a, a, an older friend who had kind of been down that road said to me, he said, you think when you sign your record deal, all your problems will go away? Let me tell you something, son. That's when your problems will start. Yeah, <laughs> because true. You, you owe somebody else money at that point, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's essentially a bad bank loan. Yeah, know? it is. I mean, it would be easier if you just got a bank loan. Then you just pay the bank back. But when you get a record deal, they're giving you money, but they're taking a lot more than just your, you know, the money you owe them. I mean, it's, it gets deep, especially nowadays, you know, they, they go in for a percentage of your merchandise. And I mean, whew, it gets, it gets kind of weird. Yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> they just give you know, get some, you know, get your Instagram, Facebook, you know, social media rocking and have direct contact with people that care about your music and yeah, everything else is just silly. It's like old school, you know, the, the record company or the record businesses. It's just, uh, it's just ancient, I think, yeah. at this point. It's amazing it's still around, but, you know, it's the streaming services that's that, that are keeping it going. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I'm not a record company business so I, I don't keep up with everything that's going on. I just, 
uh, I hear stories. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and, you know, for most of my work, I am employed by, by, uh, you know, record companies because they're the ones, uh, you know, funding recordings for the yeah. most part. You know, a lot of times people are, are getting, well, well, they, they are getting creative with, with funding their records. You know, there's, there's been obviously tons of, uh, you know, crowd sourced funding and, um, other ways of doing it, investors. But, um, it's just a miracle. People are still making recordings. I love it. Yeah. I hope it doesn't go away. Uh, yeah. Me, you and me both. I mean, you know, and I'm still a guy that, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I have music unless I get it in some sort of physical form. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm still a, a CD guy and, you know, vinyl and stuff like that. You know, I, I feel like I don't own it until I have it in some sort of physical format. You know, I, that's just, I guess I'm old school that way. Um, Matt, yeah, I, I love records. I mean, I, yeah, I just love records. So, you know, that's what I, I grew up on. That's what I, that's my, uh, that's what I do all day long. I make records. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah, well, just, it, it, people need to I, buy them so that as, so that you stay employed, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm just trying to be as crafty as possible and kind of navigate my way through all these changes with the music industry because you know having my own studio space has been really great because I don't you know if I was just a drummer waiting to go and do sessions, I don't think I would necessarily be doing them all the time i think a lot of times people will come to my studio because it's you know i can record and play at the same you know it's like it comes everything comes together it's like, right and plus i have all my my tools here you know all my drums and i can be creative and you know i kind of set it up so that i could i could do everything i've always done but I'm not relying on somebody to have a budget to go to a recording studio. I can just do it here. Right. Well, and I mean, we live in the day of, of everybody has a recording studio, you know, I mean, it's, and there's some incredible stuff that, that comes out of bedrooms. You know, I mean, if you look for it, you can find incredible things that have come out of small project studios. It's not hard to do. Yeah. Of course. I mean, God, you can just buy, I mean, you just need a laptop, a little interface and a couple microphones and you're in business, man. I mean, yeah, you are, you just gotta, you know, it's like, it's like people that make movies on iPhones or, um, you know, they, you just gotta have a good story. You just gotta have something to say, you know, something, some, some kind of vision and you can, it doesn't matter what the format is really. You just get it out there. And if people react to it, then great. Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I mean, I think we're lucky as drummers in that, you know, a, a guy that's a great, you know, singer songwriter type. I'm, I'm going to give a, you know, kind of a hypothetical scenario, but, you know, I'm a singer songwriter type of fella or, or, or lady. And, you know, I'm a good guitarist. I can play bass. I can do vocals, but I don't have you know, a, a 16 input interface to do a drum set, that's where a guy like Matt Chamberlain comes in, right? I mean, you can you can do drum tracks for somebody and just send them the wave files, right? I mean, it, it, it drummers can, can market themselves in that way. Yeah, I do it all the time. I'm doing something for this artist in the UK. Um, 
in a couple of days, they're sending me the Pro Tool session, so I'll, you know, record the drums and talk to them on Skype and make sure I'm going in the right direction. You know, just like if we were in the room together. And I'll just playlist like five or six takes to give them some options, upload it to them, and, and there you go. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a great business model, you know, for, for you because you've got a great studio. Um, Matt, I want to switch gears just a little bit here because there's a couple other things that I want to get to in our allotted time. Um, you spent a season uh, in the Saturday Night Live band. Um, and of course, I think at that time it, it was, uh, you know, the great G.E. Smith was the band leader over there. But the last time we spoke, you were telling me that, you, you know, in your one season that you were on Saturday Night Live, some of the the cast members would actually book time at at SIR, I think, in New York, and have you come over and jam with them. Give me give me a good story uh, because I know you've got one. Well, um, Adam Sandler, he was one of the cast members, and he was or is a guitar player, and at the time was writing songs and just wanted to jam and and he was like hey if i book a couple hours at sir on our break because <laughs> you know like the on saturdays we'd rehearse for a couple hours and then take like four hours off and then do the show right and he's like hey would you be into going to sir and just jamming for an hour or two and um <clears throat> yeah so we went over there and jammed jammed on some stuff and he was i mean he was into uh, you know, grunge music at the time. So I wanted to play like, you know, Nirvana songs or it was really fun. It was fun. It's cool to hang out with that, that dude. He was so funny and nice. And, uh, and the other cast member, Dana Carvey, he's a drummer. And, yeah. uh, and like every show, uh, whenever there was, you know, the band of the, of the week would be there rehearsing. We'd be standing there watching them rehearse. And he'd, he'd always go, what do you think of that drummer, man? <laughs> <laughs> Is he good? I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, generally they're pretty good. Yeah. And, and you good. were on the season that, that he and Mike Myers basically launched Wayne's world, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we recorded that song, you know, the Wayne's <laughs> world party time. It was Dana Carvey and I in the studio. With, it was two drum kits set up. So there's, I don't know if it ever got released, but, there's a version where we play the song and then at the end we trade fours and it just keeps going on. Like we just, you know, just solo and it's hilarious. That's it's, I, I did not know that you were the Wayne's world drummer. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah. that's so cool. Now, I, I, <laughs> okay. So now I have a 13 year old daughter and a, a few years ago, I couldn't take two steps in this house without hearing the song Let It Go from the movie Frozen. And when I told Skylar, my daughter, that I was going to be talking with you, she was like, uh, oh, cool. I was like, he recorded Let It Go. And she was like, oh, my God, really? <laughs> <laughs> so you, you put drums to, to quite possibly the biggest earworm of the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. I I always apologize to all my friends that have kids. I'm just like, man, I know you're probably listening to that shit over and over again. <laughs> I'm, I'm not personally responsible, but if you're hearing drums back there, 
<laughs> I apologize. <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it's just fantastic that you're so versatile. I mean, and, and, and you do so many different sessions, um, you know, like, for example, I, I looked at, you know, your, your show dates and I know you're doing, um, I think here, here in just a little bit, you're doing a show out there in California with Randy Newman, you know, and, and presumably that's going to be a, a fairly big production, um, you know, and, and looking at your stuff that you have you know, coming out in this year in 2018, uh, Perry Farrell, uh, Rufus Wainwright, uh, a perfect circle. Um, you know, one of my personal favorites, Nico case. I mean, it, you know, I yeah, mean, the perfect circle and the Nico case are already out. Oh, are they out? Okay. Okay, cool. But yeah, I've heard the Nico song, um, you know, on satellite radio, I've, I've actually caught that. But so when you go into these sessions, how do you get into you know, the different genre, how do you get in that groove? I mean, is it something that you have to mentally prepare for, or do you just go in and play for the song? Uh, no, you just show up and just play music. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. Um, yeah, you, you just listen and play your instrument. <laughs> <laughs> That's the easy part. Well, you know, here I was thinking you were going to say, well, I always stop by the Buddhist temple on my way and, you know, pray to the country gods or (laughs) like with Nico, Nico flew me out to Tucson. She likes to record at the studio out there called Wave Lab. And I think she's done a bunch of records there. And it's just one big room. There's like no separation from the control room to the performers. It's just one big room. So it was just like, it was like being in a big rehearsal space. We just, played and they recorded everything and we ate Mexican food and I had some nice IPAs and Killer. <laughs> we did that for like four days and it was really fun. It was hot as hell because <laughs> Tucson is a very hot place. Yes. But, um, and then like the perfect circle stuff was, uh, here in Los Angeles and that's a little more tweaky cause that guy, uh, Billy, uh, Howardell, the guitar player, mm-hmm. he writes he writes everything in Logic, and he's like a he's a big computer geek kind of guy. He likes to get in there and edit and do all kinds of you know computer computery choppy stuff. <laughs> yeah. And so and so those sessions were like learn the song and then just go off like just try shit, you know. Um, they, you know, once, once we got like a take, they liked, they would just say, just go nuts and just try a bunch of shit. Cause we're probably going to take, if anything seems kind of usable, we might chop it up and put it here or loop it. Or, um, there were a couple songs that were just instrumental. They didn't have vocals. And so I just tried a bunch of different grooves over them and, you know, it was pretty wide open. There was no, uh, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't too... Uh, you know, you have to get the performance of the song. It was a little more of like, let's just experiment. Right. Because, because they can go in later and chop things up and and they did. Right. Well, in, in like your, your live gig that you have coming up here in just a couple of weeks with, with Randy, I think you guys are at the Hollywood bowl. Presumably that's going to be, you know, I I don't know, but I'm assuming you're probably going to be going from charts or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's his, uh, it's Randy's career retrospective. It's like a, all the, it's going to be a little bit of the music from his entire life that he's, you know, like different songs from different records. 
and it's going to be um, with a full orchestra. So, um, so a huge amount of material to 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 conquer. Well, I don't. You know, it. There's a lot of stuff that's just the orchestra and him, and then I think the band. Because there's going to be the orchestra, then, then there's going to be the, the band. It's going to be um, guitar, bass, drums, keyboard, and then uh, Randy is playing piano and singing. The band stuff, I think there's maybe 15 songs. Um, but they're all songs that you know. Right. I mean, I mean at least I know them. It's like short people and, uh, and uh, you know, and there were a lot of songs I didn't realize he, he wrote. Like, he wrote. Uh, you know that song Mama Told Me Not to Come? Yeah, sure, of course. That that Three Dog Night had a huge hit with in the 70s? Yeah. His version is totally different, and we're doing <laughs> that one. And it's amazing. It's Jim Keltner playing on it. Or I think it's Jim on that one. The one the one Keltner one that is mind-blowing, that's just so amazing, is Randy also wrote um, You Can Leave Your Hat On. Oh, wow. I think Joe... Joe Cocker had a hit with it. Yeah. But Randy's version of it with Keltner on drums is so amazing. Check it out. It's just. I'll have to do slanky, that. Slanky and weird. And he hits like some, it sounds like a giant Chinese China symbol. He hits it like at the beginning, the beginnings of the choruses. And it's just so bizarre sounding and cool, <laughs> but it's a whole different take on that song. Cause you know, everybody's heard the Joe Cocker version, right? Which is super eighties. Yeah, um, but but yeah, it's fun to look, it's fun to get into these tracks and check out all the Keltner stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, Jim was kind of known for that. I mean, Jim Keltner is one of those guys you can't teach somebody how to play that way. In my opinion, you, you no, know, it's a he's just all feel and vibe and randomness almost you know he's because he's a jazz drummer basically he just he likes to improvise yeah so every take you do with him is a little different yeah and you know when you get the magical one it's just like wow i never would have thought of doing that you know yeah well and you know i mean another guy that you know i've played in a lot of bands that that wanted to do material from the band you know and levon helm is one of the hardest guys to try to comp this the exact same feel because it's just he was a singing drummer you know and and grew up in arkansas or whatever playing the the honky tonks down there when he was a kid it's just impossible to replicate the exact feel of him you know know. it's incredible his his, there's like mysteries of the universe and that he's one of them (laughs) keltner yeah um guy like charlie watts i mean yeah John Bonham. I mean, how how do you what what happened? Uh, no, yeah. <laughs> how come those guys. How come it's just impossible to, to cop those dudes? And you know, maybe it's because they grew up in a time when people allowed them to have their own feel and their own sound. And you know, that's that's one thing I I think about a lot is you know, nowadays everybody's so homogenized and they're not allowed to um, just kind of develop their own feel you know they're immediately told you got to play with the click track and um you know you got to do this and do that it's like well back then people were like you know they weren't thinking about that they were just thinking about making music they weren't thinking about playing to a click track or you know if it sounded good it sounded good 
And it did. I mean, that stuff. Thank God. Yeah. Well, I mean, magical. We talk on this show a lot about, you know, if you're going to try to be a session guy, you, you just have to know how to play with a click. I mean, that's just all there is to it because, you know, I mean, everything's snapped to the grid these days. And, you know, I, I listen back to recordings that I've done where I wasn't playing with a click. You know, it was my own band and the tempo fluctuates from verse to chorus to, you know, the middle eight or whatever. And sometimes it's just so much cooler to not have that, you know, metronome dictating that you have to stay just perfectly aligned to the grid. And, you know, you were talking about people with their own feel and doing, you know, kind of weird stuff. You know, I'm going to tell everybody right now, if you haven't heard of Critters Buggin', um, <laughs> uh, our our guest today was in, you know, had a band together called Critters Buggin', and it's it's some pretty awesome stuff. Uh, so I, I'm going to tell everybody to go check out a Critters Buggin' record, but, you know, don't pass go, do not collect $200, go find that someplace. You're, you're welcome. I mean, it's just great stuff. And, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm going to assume, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but, you know, tell us all, you know, I, I'm assuming that was you just being able to be Matt, right? Yeah. Well, that band was, um, the whole idea with that band was to go into a studio and just improvise or we, we actually did a record just live where we just, booked three nights at a club in Seattle and just recorded the three nights and improvised the whole time. And the whole idea was we, we loved the the concept of those uh, early 70s Miles records, Miles Davis stuff, where Tia Macero would take the improvs and chop them up and make more concise versions of them or make them more uh, arranged, you know? Yeah. And so that was the idea with that band is to not really write anything and to just make these records where we make the record by editing the arrangement together and then overdubbing to that to make it sound more intentional. That was kind of the the idea with that band. And, and we did write some stuff later on. We thought, okay, this is a lot of work editing. Maybe we should just write, you know, each of us come in with two songs, we'll, we'll record them and then, It'll be another way of making a record, but um, yeah, that that band was fully experimental, improvisational. Um, what Scarrick, you know that sax player Scarrick, mm-hmm. and Mike Dillon, the percussionist. Those two guys uh, played with like Les Claypool's Frog Brigade, and and Mike Mike and Scarrick. I mean they. You know, they, they're always on the road. They play at Galactic all the time. Stan Moore, the part of that world. And Skerek has his own bands that he does. He has a band called Garage A Trois with, um, with Stanton Moore and Charlie Hunter. It's a great band name. <laughs> yeah, it's a great band. You should check the records out. Garage A Trois. I, I will. I haven't really heard of cool. them. So you've turned me on to something new today. And so that's, that's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. If you like Stanton, man, he's killing it on those records. He, he always kills it. Yeah. Yeah. That's another, you know, like, like you said, another special brand of, of goodness. Um, 
Yeah. Matt, I want to be respectful of your time. We've we've gone just at an hour and, uh, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your day. But one of the traditions that we have here on the drum shuffle um, is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice for other drummers, other musicians, and it can be anything you want it to be. But you've just had such a legendary career, uh, both, you know, live and touring with all these different bands. You know, your your discography speaks for itself. Um, give us a good piece of advice that we can take out there as we're uh, conquering the, the, the drumming and music world. Oh, man. Well, I think this is like a, a multi a multi answer because it, it's all connected. I think, um, you know, a lot of, in, in my experience being a musician, I, I've noticed that, you know, when you, when you try to, uh, you know, get, get out of your, like you, you get out of your body or you get out of your heart and try to play what you think other people want from you instead of just playing what you feel I think that's a big mistake a lot of people make is trying to second guess what other people want instead of just playing what you're feeling. And I know that's a very vague answer, but I think a lot of drummers would benefit and a lot of musicians would benefit by just kind of listen, you know, listening more, taking it in, feeling it and not being afraid to just, give your point of view on it instead of, uh, you know, a lot of guys just get scared. You know, they're like, man, I hope, you know, like they're not thinking about the music. They're thinking about, I hope, uh, they like my drumming or I hope I don't screw up or, especially if you're me, you know, if you're me, you're in the studio going, God, please don't let me bomb this take. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, and you know, it's not easy to do, but, you know, take a couple deep breaths, you know, center yourself and listen and just get out of your, your head about it all, you know, and just react to it. If you've, you know, if you've practiced and you, you've put in the hours and you, you've played enough, you're going to play some music, you know, you just got to get out of the way of yourself and, and, um, and do it. It's, it's what happens when you're listening, you know, and I think a lot of drummers don't listen. They just, you know, they have a bunch of pre-conceived ideas about how they're supposed to be, you know, and the way you're supposed to be is just be yourself, you know, it's the most powerful thing you can do as a musician. So that would be the advice I would say would be the most valuable if I was to go back in time and tell my 20-year-old self, <laughs> I would say, just trust, just trust your gut basically and and your heart you just play from if you play from those places you're going to make some music you know and everything else is just a waste of energy yeah so um but that's easily you know easier said than done so um uh, you know it's a it's something i work on all the time try to just listen and you know the 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 music will will tell you what it wants you know if you're listening yeah, that's man. That's great advice, Matt, and and we certainly appreciate it. And the, you're right; there must be something in the water in Texas because uh, 
uh, Aaron Comas uh, from Spin Doctors was our guest, you know, a couple of months back. And, and you know, he said something very similar when we asked him for his piece of advice. He was like, you know, they, they hired you to be you. Go in and be you. You know, don't yeah, yeah. don't worry about the rest of the stuff. So um, you Texans. That's funny. Aaron Comas, man. I used to live down the street from him in Texas. I used to see him all the time. Yeah, I used to go over to his little house over there. He he was part of the same little music scene with Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. We all kind of were all playing in the same clubs, and he was he literally lived around the corner from me. I used to walk over to his place and we used to jam and. That's so awesome. That's, I mean, it's just such a small world. And, you know, the cool thing about us drummers is we're all rooting for one another. You know what I'm saying? And, um, I, you know, and I, I don't mind to share this and I, I hope you don't mind. But, you know, when I reached out to you to say, hey, man, I'd love to have you on the show. It was like almost instantly it was like, hey, here's my number. Call me. You know, I mean, it's just like we I feel like drummers are a different type of musician because we are all rooting for one another and we're always willing to help out not taking anything away from saxophone players or guitarists but drummers are kind of a special you know fraternity for sure yeah we're we're the guys always packing the shit up at the end of the night while the <laughs> singer and the guitar player are out you know trying to pick up chicks we're we're <laughs> Uh, truer words have never been spoken send complaints to matt at mattchamberlain.com no i'm kidding um <laughs> matt thank you so much for taking some time today to come on the show we really appreciate it, it goes without saying man you're welcome here anytime keep us posted on uh you know everything that you got going on and we'll have you back sometime real soon yeah thanks man absolutely matt thanks so much we'll talk to you real soon okay all right. I'll, I'll see you later all right see you buddy all right thanks bye all right guys and girls that's gonna do it for episode 28 of the drum shuffle many many thanks to matt chamberlain for taking time out of his very busy schedule to come on and talk with us today we really uh, appreciate that as always i'm gonna ask you hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in today it helps us tremendously to continue to grow it also helps a lot if you send a link to a friend who might enjoy the show it only takes a couple of minutes and it helps more than I can say. We really appreciate everybody tuning in. You're not going to want to miss us next week. We are going to be talking with the great Jerry Gaskell from the band King's X. Uh, Again, another huge influence on me personally and a huge influence on countless other drummers out there. So uh, please tune in next week. You're not going to want to miss that. We love hearing from all of you guys throughout the week. Our email address is the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com our web address is thedrumshuffle.com and of course you can find more information on me over at jamieeds.com again we appreciate you listening can't wait to talk to you again next week so until next time may your head stay strong and your sticks never break cheers cheers